What does motion sound like? With Kizikans free shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizikcom socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. This is the Music Buzz Podcast. The Music Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dane Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Syme, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz Podcast. I'm Andy Wilson along with co-host Dane Clark. Hey, Dane. Hey, Andy. How are you today? I'm good, sir. And also Hugh Syme. How's it going, Hugh? It's doing well. Thank you, Andrew, for asking. Awesome. Our guest today is Roger Joseph Manning, Jr., Roger Joseph Manning Jr. has enjoyed a long and fruitful career as a touring keyboardist, session player, arranger, and producer. His latest project we're going to talk to him about today is the Licorice Quartet. Roger's arranging career began as early as 1989 when he began arranging string, bass, wind, and vocal ensembles for his first band, Jellyfish, which he co-founded. Out of the ashes of Jellyfish arose a second band that he co-founded, Imperial Drag, which saw overwhelming overseas success, particularly in England and Japan. From there, he co-founded another band, all-vintage electronic duo known as the Moog Cookbook. I love that name. This group was started solely as a means of having a forum to express its love for the bygone era of vintage synthesizers and exotic keyboards. Ultimately, it became his calling card for longtime friend and collaborator, Beck Hansen. Roger began his over 20-year and still active relationship as Beck's sideman, touring the world and recording critically acclaimed albums, not to mention work with other musicians such as Johnny Cash, Fun, Paramore, and others. Please welcome to the Music Buzz podcast, Roger Joseph Manning, Jr. Welcome. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me, guys. Hey, Roger. Man, it's an honor to talk to you today. First of all, one of the most intriguing things about your new group, the Licorice Quartet, which is three guys, is that within all the incredible songwriting, arranging, and production, there's a sense of humor as well. Our listeners should go straight to YouTube and watch Fadoodle, which I believe is an ancient term for fornication, I'm not sure, and Lighthouse Spaceship, both from Threesome Volume 1, which was released in May of 2020. Great songs and videos. I love the Major Tom guy floating in space in Lighthouse Spaceman. 
and the fact that you never see the band's faces on Fadoodle. Plus, the tunes are fantastic. It's so well put together and so many unexpected little things. Just fabulous stuff. If I was going to try to describe the sound of your band, I started with the three Ps, power, prog, pop, but something like that. But if you like great music with a bit of sense of humor, you need to hear these guys. So as a youngster, you became fascinated with ragtime music, I read, and began taking piano lessons. Can you take us back to that point in your life? and up through your time at USC studying composition and on to the formation of Jellyfish, sir. Uh, sure, absolutely. Um, actually, what happened was all I wanted to do was play drums from the age of uh, three or four, like most little boys. Good for you. Oh, yeah. Uh, Guilty. Yeah. <laughs> just don't talk to me about anything else. And um, uh, because I wouldn't shut up about it, my mom and dad uh, figured, let's get him some music lessons but my parents were smart enough to realize well if we're going to pay for this he might as well learn some chords and harmony as well uh in addition to rhythm and because they couldn't afford an actual drum set so uh my grandparents had just donated a beat up piano to us and there were no guitars lying around so piano was going to be the instrument um a teenage girl down the street began teaching all the neighborhood kids piano lessons um and she was beautiful so I was five years old and I said, sign me up. Now, <clears throat> I, I never practiced. I didn't care. All I wanted to play was drums. So I almost quit piano twice. Uh, the first time I didn't quit because <clears throat> the movie The Sting had just come out with the Marvin Hamlish, Scott Joplin soundtrack. And I was like, what the hell is that? Yeah. And what uh. I was hearing for the first time was overt jazz harmony, which obviously I'd not heard, save the occasional Burt Bacharach song from my childhood or something like that. So um, I couldn't get enough of that. And I asked <laughs> my piano teacher, why do you have, why am I playing this Mozart stuff, which is the same three chords over and over again? I don't, I don't, I, give me some of this. And so she threw the sheet music in front of me and I was like, oh my God, this is too hard. But now I had a challenge. So we worked mm -hmm. through that and I started playing some ragtime and that's what saved me the first time. And then I got bored again. After that phase came and left, uh, a drum set arrived. My uncle sold me his secondhand Ringo oh. Abalone Pearl five piece uh, from 66, I think. Nice. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And uh, boy, did that save my butt. I just turned on the radio and uh, started learning to play along with the radio, um, <clears throat> which is a great pop schooling. Uh, I should have taken some drum lessons at the time. That would have helped. But um you know, we had it in band class, so at least I had match grip down. But um, Do you still have the drum set? Uh, no, I actually sold it. Uh, uh -huh. And it also didn't survive. Uh, one, some of the shells got beat up in a storage facility, which was unfortunate. Um, <clears throat> uh, and I even, I, <laughs> I had a full uh, blue Vista light at one point as well. In, as part I of did my, too. An Octoplus? Oh my God. Did you have... Did you have the Octoplus with the eight toms yeah. and the two bass drums? Yeah. Oh, man, you're the only other guy I've ever talked to that had the same kit. In fact, some of those drums are on the Imperial Drag album, uh, but I, I've, I've since sold that kit, you know, buy, sell, buy, sell, <clears throat> so I can get more of these things. Anyway, uh, so the second time I didn't quit piano, and I was long-winded to answer your question, but... Um, uh, I joined the Columbia House Record Club because I wanted a bunch mm. of Kiss albums. And my mom said, well, I'll let you join, but at least get me a Chicago record. You know, I was like, mm. oh, that's cool. I like those guys. So we got Chicago's greatest hits. Well, Columbia House will be no mystery to uh, people who participate in that. They completely screwed up the order. 
I got like two Kiss records and like five Chicago records. I'm like, <laughs> what's going on? And it didn't occur to me that, hey, you might want to just package it back up and said, you guys screwed up. Give me my money back. Send the right record. I said, well, this is what I got. Oh, well. <laughs> get this, get, this, is, this is my 13 records for a penny. <laughs> Still a good deal. I'm so glad you brought those up. I haven't thought about those forever. That was I had that. That too, was an man. amazing experience, though. Oh my when god, you would, yeah. When you would see that sitting on your front step, that absolutely, box, oh, just yeah. like you know, you could hear the heavens opening up. Well, it was, it was Christmas. Yeah, exactly. It was musical yeah, Christmas. It's fabulous. Uh, of course, that turned out to be a blessing in disguise because I started discovering Chicago B cuts and uh, got into some deep cuts, particularly their first three or four very, very progressive jazzy albums. So it was Roger's entry into Jazz 101 along with the Steely Dan and all the stuff that's happening at the time. Uh, but if you also remember the Musicland stores, we had those I know on the West Coast where it was just a generic music store in the mall, but in the back of the music yep. store, so they had all the sheet music for the hit parade. So you could go, oh, here's that Blondie song I love on the radio. What? There's the piano music for it. How's that even happening? Um, right. I started seeing all these uh, Chicago hits that... Uh, I didn't know existed in music form, brought them home, started teaching myself chords because that's not what was happening in legit piano uh, schooling where I did learn the skill of reading. Um, but chord harmony, none of that theory, none of that's happening. But thanks to Chicago, I said, wow, I like how that sounds. What is that? What is it? Oh, it's a C triad, but he's adding some other weird notes. What does that mean? And why are they making my stomach feel all different? Um, so that's how that happened. Uh, and I could go on and on and on. That eventually led me to USC music school. I, I, I answered this question for somebody the other day. The only reason I went to music school is I didn't know what I wanted to do with music. Uh, in high school, I was absolutely convinced this is there's no other life here but music 24 hours a day. I got to figure out what that looks like. But I honestly didn't know if I wanted to be in film scoring or start my own band or be in, in the technical engineering side of it. it the whole thing was a giant mystery to me um, so being in los angeles and exploring the wide scope of music that was being explored here in the mid 80s um, while you know going deeper into theory and composition by day um, was of tremendous value i've got to ask you just because i became more familiar with you today than ever before um, and listening to Jellyfish and listening to your, your, your uh, mood project, you clearly have an affinity for Van Dyke Parks and uh, people like that, um, which I love. You know, I'm a huge Brian Wilson Pet Sounds fan, but I can see that in e even when you start a song off that's aggressive and sounding like, oh, this is going to be a rock pop song, somewhere in the middle of it, th th there's a kettle drum and a muted bass, and then there these phenomenal Carl Wilson vocals coming in. I, I love the way you break down your music. Where did that come from? Uh, just being a fan. I mean, really, you know, I saved my money as a little boy, like we all did from our paper route to go try to buy a $7 piece of vinyl. So very first thing I spent my money on was Kiss Alive 1. Then three months later, I had enough money for a second record, and that was Beach Boys Endless Summer. Oh, uh, yeah. So... See, again, I always remind everybody, and this be no mystery to any of you, in the 60s and 70s and even into the 80s, the hit parade <laughs> couldn't have been more um, uh, diverse. And uh, yeah, you know, I mean, you, you've got an Earth, Wind and Fire funk jam, mm -hmm. killing it in one respect. Then the next song is Gary Newman, Cars. Then the next song is 
some Pablo Cruz Yacht Rock Doobie Brothers uh, thing, and then you've got some disco instrumental. Don't forget the Carpenters, you know. No, I, I, I will will never forget them because I I steal more from them uh, harmonically uh, for vocal arranging than most people would like to uh, believe. Um, Interesting. So uh, I thought music was I thought the top ten was always going to be like that, and. It's not anymore and hasn't been for Boy, hasn't well, been for it's far from highly one dimensional. There's many, many reasons for that. <clears throat> uh, but uh, so, uh, you know, like I said, Kiss and what they were mm -hmm. doing in rock and roll and theater mm -hmm. were as important and influential to me as an eight year as an eight year old as uh, these highly jazz influenced four freshman tonalities I was hearing from Brian Wilson and his pals. Um, and so it, there was no right or wrong. You either resonated with it or you didn't. Yeah. 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 Sure. Yeah. And, um, so you could have this, this beautiful, um, yeah. Carpenter's ballad one minute that's transporting you in, in one way. <clears throat> and then, uh, gosh, I don't know. I mean, somebody, your, your, your friend comes over and says, have you ever heard black Sabbath? Check this Sabbath, bloody Sabbath album. It's, it's the most evil yeah. thing that's ever existed. And you just you're just constantly it was just constantly having your mind blown, having your mind blown, and that whole that whole you know I mean Rush is one of the bands that helped graduate me into the Yes and Genesis world, right? Because they were kind of entry level prog, and yes, and um, well put, well put, yeah. And that's not that's not dissing them in any respect. I have my favorite Rush albums, like anybody, and you know I I I probably practiced drumming. Because I knew I couldn't do it, so I wanted to feel like maybe I can do some of it. Maybe I, which was Rush Hemispheres. I put that album on, forty-five minutes. I'm gonna just stumble through this and see how far I get. Yeah, um, yeah. I could go on and on. <laughs> well, I, I have to say, when I listen to your music, it, it evokes all of the things you're talking about and the infatuation you have to to go after, or not not to emulate, but to certainly listen to and be influenced by, but. When I was listening today, I was just going, there's Van Dyke Parts, I, oh, and there's Brian, and there's 10CC, and there's Toy Matinee, and there's Tears for Fears, um, Queen. It's just fabulous, the, the palette that you work with. It's an amazing achievement. I mean, a lot of us, you know, in my age group, generation, whatever, we were all more or less inspired by the same things. But frankly, that's what still gets me out of bed in the morning. Uh, f figuring out, I'm still intrigued and perplexed by what many of my heroes did to get to the finish line. Um, you know, people asking me, so what, what's, what's new that you're listening to and checking out? And I'm like, well, there are things, but they're very few and far between. And I have to dig so hard. Meanwhile, some independent record company just released, you know, three psych compilations from 1968 that I've never heard. It's got all these obscure psych pop bands from England all over it. And, I, and all that's exciting me way, way, way more. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. And it's just, but that's, that's just an extension of uh, who I am as a person. You know, I was born in 66. Well, that's revolvers coming out. So I'm not, I'm not the revolver generation. I learned, I learned about the Beatles through Badfinger and cheap trick and wings and all these post Beatle bands. And, um, all me and my collaborators have ever done is really we've just kind of carried on in this tradition because one of the most important things for us has been writing something that's classic by virtue of the fact that we worship melody that already dates us <laughs> that puts us in 80s 70s 60s 
yeah melody melody became much less valued to the point of where now it's it's by the pop community it's admittedly and willfully not valued yeah if the, if True. these generations want to do that that's their prerogative i'm not going to be at that party right. no I, I need my soul massage with with harmony and chromaticism and melody as much as i do uh, uh, intricate and fun and groove uh, uh, rhythmic concepts. There's EDM music I love. There's hip hop I love, and that's not that's one dish in the seven course meal. Right, right. I need the rest of it. I appreciate your explanation because I w- I was a fan during high school and college of Jellyfish and listened to that uh, the first record a lot at the time. And then every once in a while, we'd come up and I'd revisit it, you know, kind of like you do. You go back through your catalog. But it didn't really occur to me until recently before, you know, lining up talking to you today. I'm like, man, this is 70s rock. <laughs> you know, I mean, those songs, you know, joining a fan club and that is why and baby's coming back. I mean, I love those songs. And I, but at the time in high school, if somebody would have said, oh, this is kind of reminds me of I would have I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have said that, you know, because I was obviously too, too cool back then. But, you know, hearing you talk about it now, it makes complete sense. And, and it wraps up the package for me because I have in my notes, Jellyfish was 70s rock. <laughs> you know, I have well, yeah. and not, not to say you weren't completely, but the root of it is, is obviously there. And I, so I, I, yeah. I, I guess I'm, I guess I was right. So that's kind of 60s also. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's a mixed bag of that. I mean, that's what you talk about Chicago. That's, you talk about that's Kiss, what's cool and you talk about, about it. That's what's yeah. That's it's what the I mean. Pot, you know. Yeah, it's yeah. The, that's yeah. what I love about it. And I didn't realize that until recently. I guess. Uh, people have to understand that if you were, you know, driving on the van with us from from show to show, you know, we're listening and being inspired as much by the Sweet as we are Randy Newman Sail Away. Uh, so there, there really is, you know, there's very much a. a a singer-songwriter school, but for us, so many of the singer-songwriter was just so boring. We're like, we're not about jeans and a t-shirt. We really enjoy the theater and the visual side of it. And we were excited to make MTV videos and see what we could do with that and uh, mm-hmm. really play up into that, you know, joining a fan club, uh, pageantry and, and, and sensationalism of all that. And, and we, we love, we simultaneously love all of the things that happen with British punk and then over into American punk. So everything from the damned and sex pistols and, and Susie and the Banshees to what happens when Husker do and the replacements and REM get a hold of those sounds. And, and uh, it's just like, give me a song, give me a song. And then we'll, we'll yeah. you know, fill in the blanks with the arranging and the, the, all the, the fun, fun stuff. The songs are great. You, the melodies are constructed well. The chord progressions are, take you in an unexpected place. But in, in the arrangements complement it so well. I mean, just so many surprises. I just went, no. <laughs> oh, wow. And then, ooh, and I'm not easily drawn into stuff like that. I mean, it's really thoughtfully done. But, you know, your arrangements, I mean, can you just talk about that a little bit? I mean, do you guys all sit in a room together? You're doing that or... I would say every record that I've been involved with, none of it really came from, hey, guys, let's jam through this chord progression a couple of times and see what happens. No, it, there's, there's some kind of premeditative concept. Yeah. You shoot for that concept. Sure. You start throwing ideas that relate to that concept. And then you, you find out really quickly what's sticking and what's not. Like, well, that's a, I don't like that idea at all, but I had to hear it first. Yeah. Right. yeah. That, sure. It really gets arduous when you're trying background vocal experiments and acrobatics oh i've heard oh. my head okay let's get to the piano arrange, arrange the notes and 
uh, this is going to be fantastic, only to find out that you sound like Frankie Valli in the Four Seasons, and that wasn't your goal at all. You were hoping to get yeah. somewhere, you know, any place, any place but yeah. Jersey Boys. <laughs> any place but that. But yeah, we're not interested in a doo-wop moment. We're interested in some <laughs> uh, something other, and um, but you don't know until you hear it. So it's a great exercise in patience. Again, I, I've never known any other way because the 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 pop rock that in, has inspired me. Even even if it is like a, a a very punky kind of garage jam or or a you know rush power trio thing, there's there's arrangement in it, um, mm. and sure. sometimes it can go fast. Not really, um, you know. You, I've worked with everybody who's like just a consummately trained, uh, highly improvisational musician, all the way to the opposite people who've had no schooling. They're only self taught. Um, they don't have command of, of jazz vocabulary and both people run into the same roadblocks, um, mm -hmm. the same snags. And, uh, you just have to be patient. And then as, as one of the songwriters, you, you know, you, you never want the vision to be watered down. And that's, what's always so hard because mm. you have all these well-meaning people, producer, engineer, bandmates, record company who are commenting on it. And you could, if you're a people pleaser, you can go, oh, well, sure, let's try that. I'll, I'll, give, I'll give it to you. You want trumpet on the outro of the song? Sure, I'll give it to you. Well, at the, and then at the end of the day, you're like, this isn't what I heard in that dream at three in the morning when, when I woke no. up. No. Right. It's not for everybody. I mean, this is, this is why bands break up. You know I mean? This is, yeah, sure. It's uh, trying to, let's get married. Let's, you know, let's agree on every financial and decision around the kids for the next 20 years. <laughs> and often the, one of the only reasons bands are even together, uh, they, they've lasted past the first two records because some level of money came in that was so much mm -hmm. better than working at the hardware store. It's like, all right, mm -hmm. all right, you take this one. Nope, I'm not going to challenge you. Let's do it. And, you know, sure. whatever. But uh, somehow bands like YouTube have been able to make that work. Speaking of relationships, so one of your longest musical relationships is with Beck. Can you talk a little bit about you know, the beginnings of that relationship and, uh, you know, what's maintained that over the years. What's maintained it. Yeah. Is the miracle. You know, I'm right there with you. What's maintained it is the miracle that you have someone like him who by he's walked this line between super high art, conceptual artist and fan of pop music. Mm -hmm. I, I everything he's done much to my amazement more or less has resonated with enough of the top of the bell curve the middle america mall goer that it's generated enough commerce that simultaneous allowed him to make left turns like all the time it's it's i yeah like you said i've been working with him off and on for 20 years and i still marvel at when he makes a choice uh, when he commits to something, why he does. And I, I'm not even saying it's that premeditated or calculated. It, it's just, it's worked out. Um, so I, I was a fan before we uh, joined forces, before he, he had a falling out with his previous keyboard player and I got the call to audition. Um, so it's really helped to be in a mu music making capacity with somebody who comes from a very different background than me. Um, yes, we have overlap influences, but he approaches, he just approaches it the, the whole, the whole uh, challenge 
uh, strategically differently than I do typically. So I've learned volumes uh, working with him. Now, you mentioned earlier about how um, having kind of a musicological background, having the vocabulary that you have, do you find working with Beck that he's the same way or is he more, is he more conceptual and, and thinks uh, through trial and error or does he very clearly know what needs to go where? And, and he's, a, he's a bit of an enigma that way. He is deliberately, consciously untrained. So you have to remember he grew up in a house before his parents separated where David Campbell, string arranger, uh, yeah. father, he says, I remember falling asleep at night, my dad working in the other room, arranging string parts on the ARP string ensemble. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm sorry, that will influence you, whether you think it's influencing you or not. Mm-hmm. You're, you're hearing, sure. you're being introduced to advanced harmony, period. Now, that doesn't mean you then went to music school and studied the great arrangers the last 300 years. Beck deliberately said, I had an opportunity to take guitar lessons and I didn't do it because I didn't want to sound like everybody else. He goes, I respected Van Halen, but I didn't want to sound like him. Mm-hmm. And, and so he said, I, my, hope, my hope was in not taking traditional lessons, I wouldn't fall into the same trappings that I saw all these very talented people around me doing. That I was, yeah. that I was more interested in what happened when I kind of stumbled in and out of things. So he's, he's literally this super unique dichotomy. I, I certainly don't know of anybody else like him where he's, he's, one, he's simultaneously the innocence of a child hearing it for the first time and literally like not knowing any better. And he's super intellectual, highly brilliant. Not only is he well-read, he's so uh, cultured in mm-hmm. film, popular music, unpopular music. Um, uh, his, his mother... Uh, is the daughter of a very famous conceptual New York Fluxus artist. And she was uh, an artist herself. You know, she hung out with the, the uh, Warhol Velvet Underground community as a teenager. And so this is all, it, it, punk, uh, when punk launched in LA in, in, you know, 76, 77, Beck's mom was going to these clubs because she was only in her late 20s, early 30s. And she'd take her two children and the, the club would babysit them. There's pictures of Beck as a seven-year-old wow. sitting on the side of a stage while, you know, X is playing. Wow. Now, wow. all these things are informing this person we now know as Beck. And, right. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, and I watch all this come out of him as, as well as some book he just read, some movie he just watched in his, you know, 5,000-volume uh, Criterion collection of, of classic film. And the guy's like a huge Buster Keaton film, and he's a – as well as all the avant French, you know, new wave filmmakers you would expect him to be a fan of and on and on and on. And at his, and at his core, he loves simple pop. You know, he, he appreciates what Taylor Swift and the Ramones are doing as much as anybody. So it's That's just cool. every time I hang out with him or have the luxury of making an extended album with him, it's a, it's a music school crash. You do, you're right. He stumbles beautifully and he flirts with those things without without ever going there. I, I, I love that about him. He, he almost gets poppy and then suddenly it's just something much more special. Same with your music though, man. I, honestly, I, I, I confess to not having been as familiar with you as I am now, having spent the better part of the day looking at Jellyfish and the Moog project and so on. And I, I'm a huge fan of 
all the influences. And I, I caught the ragtime. I thought, well, <laughs> there's definitely some, you know, I heard that and I thought not only is it ragtime, you also enjoy bringing in the Salvation Army band to kind of, uh, you know, to, to, to be the underpinning of the ragtime. It's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for noticing. <laughs> On the, I have a question on the live side and, the, and one more question about Beck. When he was opening for you too on the Joshua Tree Tour, were you out with him then? Yes, thankfully. Okay, <laughs> that was, yeah. That was quite a special ex- three weeks, yeah. Well, I bet. Oh, wow. So um, I had the pleasure of working on a few of those shows and seeing them. And I've seen Beck before. So I've seen you guys several times. It's always a treat, always kind of a different show. You never know what to expect. But I'll be honest, going into that, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about that experience because that stage was the coolest stage I've ever seen in person for a concert. But Beck came out there and just, you know, usually when you see an opening act on somebody else's stage like that, you're kind of like, eh, okay, well, this is a YouTube show. So what do you expect? But he owned it, man. The crowd was way into it. And I was like, good for him, man. I mean, I didn't, not that I didn't expect that, but what a, what a challenge that must have been. So you, can you talk about that part of it, I guess? Yeah, psyche. I, I totally hear you. It's an undertaking to not be dwarfed by this YouTube stage set alone, no matter who you are, no matter no what a big presence right. you are or not. And, and we were all cognizant of that, but most of us are trapped behind our instruments. And yeah, he, you know, he, he, he rose to the occasion. And, you know, he was as um, totally. self-conscious and, and nervous about any of this as we were. Yeah. And he, he just went for it. <laughs> you couldn't tell because it just really worked. I, I specifically remember watching the show here in Indianapolis and just being like, wow, man, they're really, that's great. What a cha- What a challenge, you know? So anyway, we're going to transition a little bit and talk about uh, album artwork. You know, I look at jellyfish and I go, oh, there's definitely kind of a, for lack of a better term, kind of a, a Fillmore East kind of, or Fillmore West kind of hippie, you know, especially in the logo, you know, and then, then I look at the more, um, I'm looking at the, uh, the, the licorice quartet with the black, it looks like a black, uh, pelican or, or a, a, a crane. I mean, that's way more sophisticated, a lot more, um, um, Avalon by what's his name? Um, Roxy. Yeah. 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 It feels that way. So I, I don't know where your roots are. I mean, you definitely are quite free in the way you are. I mean, the Moog cookbook is a really quirky kind of uh, 2001 space oddity kind of moment. Um, you know, and, and the, you know, the, the look of the, the redhead girl on the cover of Spilt Milk is, reminds me of the kind of crudeness, but the, the iconic presence of, of blind faith where the girls holding the chromium, you know, it's pretty, pretty technically simplistic cover, but powerful. So what what makes first of all how involved are you uh, how how um, important has art been to you both as a consumer and as someone who um, wants to kind of control the trajectory and the the outward appearance of who you are all of the above I, I grew up in the seventies when uh, taking a two record set into your room shutting the door turning off the light flipping on the black light switch uh imbibing something possibly if you wanted to and getting lost in where those records transported you i i could think of a no greater experience uh short of than yeah. sharing that with your friends or extending that yeah. concert setting <clears throat> and of course what led the way well the hypnosis album covers are typically what led the way 
certainly for a lot of British and European stuff that was coming our way. Yeah. I like it all. And, and like anything, it's, it's super visceral and immediate for me. Um, mm-hmm. As much as I love getting lost into the different eras of the band, yes, frankly, John, you know, Roger Dean is the sixth band member. I mean, I can't, yeah. I can't have those records without him saying, when you listen to the music, it's going to sound and look like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's literally, it's, it's, it's yeah. prog for nursery school kids in that way. And yeah. that's, a, that's a beautiful thing. Um, uh, I, uh, art um, can transport me places like music does. But when they go hand in hand, it's, it's even more incredible. And so much of that happens, even, even in the, the whole 80s new music, what's coming out of England now, the second British invasion with all this crazy post-punk stuff. And, and there, there are album covers in there that are so important. I'm, none come to mind at the moment. But yeah, I mean, that, that Blind Faith album cover is just like, you, you had to know it was on those records. You, you saw they were like, the, what the crap? They're, they're challenging mm-hmm. me in so many ways here. Uh, and I'm so intrigued. And, you know, uh, I've got to find out what the contents are actually about. Yeah. So we've, I, I've, thankfully, we had many art director who were willing to give us the benefit of the doubt and didn't kick us out of the art meeting uh, because we had 101 zany ideas. And we were like, look, we know this is too much information. Can you help us hone it down? You know, so that's why, like on spilt milk, you get been there, done that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's it's got to be you know it's it's got to be a nightmare for the art director when the the guys who didn't go to art school are telling them, "Well, just make it happen, dude." <laughs> yeah, right. Well, jokingly, I I tell musicians who I meet that one of the things I dread most are the people that say, "Oh, I've loved your work for years, and um, we've been looking forward to working with you." Anyways, here's our idea, and to me, as an art director, obviously half the fun I have is to get a great title and respond to that, um, just that. Not to say I don't want to hear the music, I don't want to hear your ideas, but one of the luxuries of being a Storm Thorgerson or, or you know, who I've been permitted to be is that you can take a good title and go into an unexpected direction. I mean, if, if I was an art director and said I want two people shaking hands in, a, in an abandoned um, back lot in Burbank, <laughs> one of them's going to be on fire. Um, that's what I think Wish You Were Here is going to be about. A lot of bands would... That'll sell records. Yeah, a lot of bands <laughs> show you to the no door. No brainer. It sure took us all back when you explained that. We knew what you were talking about, though. Yeah, you know? and that's the chance that you take sometimes when you're when you're an art director. So that's just something I'm curious about. You do like to throw everything on the table and talk about preconceived ideas as an artist yourself. You like to bring that to the table and then have that distilled by... Uh, a creative director art, artist well we learned very early on if you don't like what you hear you don't like what you see et cetera, et cetera. ultimately doesn't matter who's to blame yeah you're the, you're to blame the if the audience doesn't like your album cover they're going to point at you they don't know who the art director is right. if they don't like your video That's they're going right. to point the video direct uh, you, you not the video director yeah good good if, point if, yeah. if you release the first single and you should have released track four instead of track one and it doesn't take off Nobody blames the record company. They blame you. And, yeah, and so yeah. we were just like, you only, we only get a, this one go around. This is our one chance. So we're constantly, you know, I, I call it healthy desperation. There was like, it's now or never fucking do it. We had, we had friends yeah. who were getting signed to major labels. Nine months later, the A&R guy gets fired, transferred to another company. The band gets dropped. We're like, yeah. that's it. That was your shot. 
the politics. Sure. And yeah. so everything was so precious to us. We were micromanaging everything, much to many of our bandmates and collaborators' dismay, and maybe to our own detriment. But we just we were like, ah, we're on the roller coaster ride. Let's we can't screw it up. We can't screw it up. So yeah, you know, and, and we would, uh, you know, a <laughs> band like Chicago. Here, here they come again. Come on. I don't think any of them were at the band meetings. Is that what they all took a vote on? No, no, no. That was completely corporate and it just got away from this, those album covers are interesting for the first four or five and then they're incredibly boring. And, you know, mm. I, I know you'll know all you guys will. There's that era of album covers where the band members are on the album cover and they're flying through the air and they're frozen and their hair is oh, yeah. Just, or they're they, they're all shaking hands and pointing at each other like looks like somebody, uh-huh. somebody's cracked a joke and they're they were caught mid laugh. Uh, I don't I don't know if I have my facts correct, but we were told that it was a female photographer who was given the unfortunate assignment by uh, the, the head of the company. Was like, Look, because I have all these brilliant singer songwriter artists, they're so boring on stage. They're they're so boring in the press when the press want to take pictures. Can you breathe some life into them for this for these album covers? You got to help me out here. Do something. And she was like, "I don't know what I'm going to do. These people are what you said. They're very mild mannered. They're not particularly yeah. extrovert. You know, they express themselves through their music. They're not all that jazz and razzmatazz when they're at a photo shoot. They're quite nervous. And she got the idea to like, bring in the wind fans, bring in the trampoline. I want to, you know, <laughs> and that's and it worked. Yeah. And so she got all these jobs to take all the boring people. And try to breathe some light. That's why you have endless album covers like this. Yeah, I was actually collecting them at one point because they were 50 cents at a thrift store. He's like, look at this right. one. Look at this one. The Beatles did that jump um, years earlier. There was that airborne shot of them pre-help. Yeah, yeah I forget yeah. that cover, but that was the precursor to whatever she was accomplishing for sure. But that was cool because that was the Beatles. So it, it was, was though. There's very few bands that would get away with something as cheeky as a white album. That's the height of brilliant minimalism and arrogance all at once. And, yeah. you know, I think no one else could do such a thing. And it's testament to the fact that a lot of bad covers, you know, forgettable covers become memorable because the music's so good. And there's some pretty bad artwork out For there. Sure. I mean, case in point, the, you know, the, the Blind Faith cover, not a great cover, strong, you know, muscle memory and, you know, musical memories, you know. I wanted to ask you about this though. Have you seen the movie? licorice quartet the movie licorice quartet yeah oh you mean the behind the music segment or there's i, I found a thing about is there's a 1970 uh, uh, yes i'm sorry i didn't know what you were referencing yeah, yeah i mean i just was looking looking up you guys and i went wait a second there's a movie about a porn star from 1970 i just wondered if you guys uh, not, saw not, that not got, quite a little more tasteful than that uh, so basically <laughs> there's this british uh film director who was I, I was introduced to, I think, because uh, me and my friends were collecting um, Italian and French film scores that we were finding in Japan that were being reissued. Uh, many, many composers of, the, of those schools that are, are they're all extensions of like John Barry and, and a lot of those guys, right? So um, we found out that uh, there was this British film director in the late 60s, early 70s named Radley Metzger, who basically did these dramas that were uh, highly erotic, uh, basically softcore uh, adult films that are just hyper-stylized, as so much stuff was from the Italians and French at that point and, and British. Um, and Beck and I and other people we fell in love with this guy's films. Uh, and The Licorice Quartet was one of those films. Did that happen to be a threesome? 
No, <laughs> it, it, it didn't. It was it was the, lo the logical question. But you Thanks. know, <laughs> mm -hmm. sorry, I had to ask. So uh, Dane and I, before uh, you guys were on, we were we were talking. We said well, we got to ask you about the how you got connected with Johnny Cash and and tell us a little bit about that experience. Yes. Uh, well, experiences with Johnny Cash and Neil Diamond and Glenn Campbell and people I can't even believe Diana Ross. They've all come through producers. So okay. ideally the producer had worked with me already on something. It went well enough for him to call me when he did some keyboard work on something else. So the Johnny Cash stuff uh, came through Rick Rubin. Uh, okay. Glenn Campbell came through Julian Raymond. Uh, Diana Ross came through Peter Asher. Was that one of the later Glenn records before he passed? It was, it was uh, Glenn's last two records. Those are great records. Yeah. Okay. I saw Neil Diamond uh, in Toronto and I was, this is years ago, this was in the late 70s, it, a brilliant show. It was one of the slickest mm. um, performances. I mean, it was, it was not, there was no orchestra, but of course at the time, you know, I'd just come out of Mellotron and I'd found the Prophet 5. So I was thinking, how could so much convincing strings come off of just two keyboard players? It was, for me at the time, it was just sure. it's brilliant to experience it. But the, the band was so tight and the show was so, so tight. What what era were you working with Neil? This was 2006, I want to say. I don't even remember the name of the album, but it was another Rick Rubin production. Did you tour? Or no, you... he has he has a touring band, but actually Rick was inviting him to work with musicians that weren't in his band. I see. So okay. Ben Montench plays keys. I play keys. It's a good album. Yeah. Uh, Smokey Hormel plays guitar. There's a, a just a bunch of people, uh, often people that Rick would work with at that time, um, and you know. I got to meet Neil, but everybody else, well, I, I met Glenn too, but John, Johnny was not there. Jo Johnny was uh, in Nashville. Uh, one of his producers came out whose name slips my mind, but he was great to talk to. Uh, he didn't know me from Adam, but we got along fantastically. He was more of the old Nashville guard, and we would talk about uh, Glenn, like Al DeLore and Glenn Campbell, Wichita lineman era, Galveston era, Jimmy, Jimmy Webb era stuff, and which are such incredible moments in the american country music legacy because they crossed over to such a degree but they're they're so masterfully done when you go into a session is it always charted or do you are you allowed the freedom to kind of hear it interpret it and respond to it um viscerally uh i've almost never played on sessions where things are meticulously charted out the way you would have had on a stevie yeah. album or any of those any of those uh traditional Quincy Jones, um, Arif Mardin, um, yeah. uh, albums, uh, I've got chord charts and if I don't, I will insist on them giving me 10 minutes to create one. Cause I've got, I need to have a lead sheet to follow. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's impressive. I mean, that it's also the best, it's the most fun way of approaching it in my view. I think that's, you know, but to work under pressure like that, it's one thing to say, okay, send it to me, give me, give me three or four days to work with it and then I'll come to you versus going into a session cold and, and being good within 15 minutes. That's well, what inevitably happens is, I mean, I'd like to think that one of the reasons I get repeat business is because I have an improvisational side and I, I love the jigsaw puzzle. I don't, <laughs> I like being given as much time as I can have, but of course that's, that's not an option. Um, I love, hearing a song for the first time and as a fellow songwriter going, all right, what are the producer and artists? What are they looking for? How can I help fill in the blanks? 
because often they'll say things like, we know we're hearing keyboards in the chorus. We don't know what. You got to make it just pop, man. It needs to sound like a chorus. And I'm like, yeah, okay, here goes nothing. Now, often ideas will pop into my head, particularly if I'm really excited about the tune. I'm like feeling yeah. connection to it. But just as often, it's like, man, okay, I need to figure out, I really need to try to understand what they're going for. And I'm, uh, I, just start, I just start shooting ideas out there. And then everybody puts their mind together. No, we weren't. You can try something that's piano-y, but we weren't hearing acoustic piano. So let's, can we maybe make it electric piano? Can you sit maybe in that realm? That brings me to the next, next question. When you go to a session and you've got a controller, you've got your laptop, you've got samples, you've got the acoustic piano in the room, a B3, when they call upon you to bring your flavor, your, your concepts, your, your sonic palette to the floor, how familiar do you have to be with all of your samples and all your synth components to actually rise to the occasion under pressure like that? I, that's why I talk about, yeah, give it to me and I'll, you know, give me five days and I'll come back to you. You don't always get that. How do you, how do you bring the best forward if you have to draw on all of that stuff? Uh, it's just practice. Yeah. You, I mean, I have to know, I have to know what my sound palette uh, is available to me at any given moment and hope that it, it works when I fire it up. We may get, go down a path of exploring, and in the old days, if they wanted to try brass or string arrangement, they'd have to hire a guy to arrange string or brass, bring in the players, right. and only then could they decide, is this really going to be right for the song? Now, they've got me like bringing up brass samples, and I'm improvising yeah. on a spot a brass arrangement. Well, depending on the song, that's going to be easier or not, and... Um, I, I'm even like, you know what, if you let me take this home for 24 hours, I'll give you a crazy string arrangement, but yeah, let's do our best now. It, it, there's, there's no, there's no one way that it's done. Thankfully, I work with a lot of producers who do have some kind of concept in mind. So if they're saying I'm hearing a part that's uh, percussive in the verse, you know, well, I might go, well, let, let's try it on a spiky percussive instrument, like a, a clavinet, uh, yeah. chord. Uh, dulcimer you know we've got all the samples let's try that well right away they the artist might say that's cool but i want something more electronic sounding this sounds too old this sounds too vintage and and antique okay mm. so we shift that idea over to a spiky synth sound something that is electronic that has still has that same attack as those so it's um it's just it's just constantly trying 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 now the whole time i've got to be uh improvising melody shapes chord voicings based on my chart uh to not get in the way of the lead vocal uh enhance the lead vocal uh do something supportive with the rhythm section because i wasn't there on the day the drums bass and guitar were tracked it's impressive that you can kind of keep all those balls in the air but equally impressive to me is that you can keep track of the the archive <laughs> of the tool set well, you get your fav you get your favorites. You start finding out this sound yeah. and this kind of idea worked really well with these last two clients. I don't have any other ideas. I'll try. I'll try with this guy right now and see if he digs it. Sure. Your um, bag of tricks is a lot. I mean, I'm not saying a drummer doesn't walk in with a kit and perhaps some favorite African drums and a few other kind of percussive items. Well, hang on now. 
I mean, there's there's been the snare drum war before that I've gone into where, well, can we hear that 21st snare again? Because we like 19, and but 22 is just, it's just a little too honky. Just, can you I've put- seen a five-day <laughs> snare drum war. Oh, thank God those days are kind yeah, of Yeah, no, the, the, the legend is apparently on uh, Super Tramp Breakfast in America that was, that was two weeks of snare auditions. Okay. That's when you get your drum tech in to do all that. That album does sound good, but... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why God created pinball and, and pool table, because <laughs> yeah, the rest right? of the band would just go down the hall for a week and let the drummer, you know. Okay, so you had a writing session at one point with, with Brian Wilson. And yeah, I think you described it as surrealistic, possibly. It was... It was uh, I describe it as a tease. It was a tease. Um, uh I, I created the analogy of uh, going on a date and you're very excited to go out on this date. In fact, you can't sleep the night before. Lots of anxiety, pumping, what's it going to be like, blah, 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 blah. All the questions we ask themselves. You go on the date, much to your surprise, within about an hour, 30 minutes, you're relaxed. You're like, oh, I can be myself with this person. They seem, God, they're even better in person than I thought. Uh, this is going really well. We're just, wow, we have so much in common. Blah, blah. I can't wait to kiss her goodnight at the end of the date. And when can we meet next? Although I didn't kiss Brian Wilson, everything else would be the same. Um, <laughs> so what happened was, thankfully, uh, Don was who, was, who was, I think, working with Brian at the time, was courting him, uh, was teaming him up with a variety of people. That's how we got the Ringo co-write as well, was through Don. Mm. That yeah. couldn't have gone better. So he hooked us up with Brian. And, uh, you know, I did not want to show up empty handed. So I concocted, um, just this basic idea with me mumbling a melody, no words, um, the verse and chorus that I thought was very, very solid, uh, that, that, uh, I could present. I played it for Andy, my partner at the time. He, he agreed. He goes, I think this is a great idea to go in there cold with, we got to have something. So we go in there with this idea sure. and, uh, you know, we meet at the Beach Boys warehouse in Santa Monica. Brian gets there. Don gets there. Don gets a phone call as soon as we walk to the door. He says, oh, well, you guys sit on the couch here and get to know each other. And we're literally like first date. Everybody's twiddling their thumbs. Nobody's talking. Nobody's saying anything to anybody. There's all these uh, assistants and handlers and coworkers mm. running around for Don and him. And so Don gets off this call. We walk into a music workspace area with a piano. Uh, Don says, so Roger, I, you know, I hear you, you have something you'd like to play for Brian and let's, you know, let's get started. Okay. I'm, I'm just, I'm shaking in my shoes. I'm like, what am I about so to bad. do? Because <laughs> first and foremost, I'm about to sing something that ideally he's supposed to sing. I don't have words, so I'm not going to sell anybody on some great lyrical idea. And, um, you know, I'm borrowing from his repertoire because I didn't want, I wanted to write something that I felt was in, uh, that was was familiar. I didn't want to hand him a left turn, right? But there's all these people like looking over our shoulder and leaning on the piano. I don't know who any of them are. Why, can I ask why you didn't bring something pre-recorded just to kind of make that less nerve wracking and a bit more... I had found, and I think Andy would have agreed, that in our brief co-writing uh, experience, it, w- it should never be about here. It's you mm-hmm. want to invite the person into that collaborative process. Good point. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. so yeah. We, yeah. we wanted to 
get the uh, snowball rolling down the hill. Yeah. Make sure it was open-ended for people to weigh in, including Don. You know, Don was obviously going to have his opinion on on stuff. Sure. How'd it go? I sat down and somehow made it through a verse, chorus, verse, chorus, which was all I had. And I realized that. And as soon as I stopped after the second chorus, where the next part of the song should be, a solo or what have you, Brian goes, and now we do the surfer girl bridge here because it was like a, a, a six, eight shuffle, like, uh. and then he, go, he goes, let me show you. And I get up off the piano bench, Brian sits down and he improvises this bridge idea, which was absolutely in the same feel and attitude as the ideas I presented. So it made total sense. I knew why he was saying that. Yeah. And he didn't have words either. So he was like, he's like, did it, did it. And he's doing hmm. that fucking thing. And I'm oh, just like, wow. <laughs> yeah, man. And just That's smiling, good. just ear to ear grin. How is this happening? How is this happening? Mm. And then he finished, he finished the bridge. And then he goes, yeah. And then maybe we can go into the chorus again or modulate the key. And he goes, oh, and Roger, I love that half diminished chord you play going into the chorus. And I'm like, uh-oh. Of course he did. <laughs> he is now coherent, alert, articulate, awake, Brian, that he wasn't yeah. back there on no. the couch. All the legends you're hearing about how Landy has diagnosed him and he's highly dysfunctional and this, this, and that, and the other, and he needs all these people. No, he doesn't. Not when he's speaking the language of music. He was sharp as a tack, and me, Andy, and Don, ignoring all these onlookers, now the four of us were making music. Now the, the, the process had begun. Brian was excited. Don was excited. We saw that we could do this. Oh, let, what's next? Okay, well, well, just then, I kid you not, we hadn't been at the piano more than 20, 30 minutes. One of the onlookers taps Brian on the shoulder and says, um, Brian, I'm sorry to interrupt. It's, it's 2.30 now. Uh, it's time for your, your afternoon nap. I'm going to need to excuse you and everybody else, and we'll have to pick this up another time. Oh, wow. And you, so, you could have heard a pin drop. And, and Brian goes, Okay, well, I got to go, guys. This has been great. Thanks so much. Really nice meeting you. What a fun song. Okay, see you later. And that was it? Was there a second date? Or no. did you ever report? No. We never heard from anybody again. We never heard from Don Was' oh, office, man. anybody from the Brian Wilson camp. Now, we came to learn later that Don did not end up working with him in any extended capacity. I th- they did something. It was like videotape. I think it was like for a... It was something live. Oh, I... I just wasn't made for these times that live. Yeah, I think, yeah, but there was no, yeah. they did not do a record together is my point. Right. So uh, that was not the beginning it. and the end of it. And, you know, it almost would have been easier if he had said, thank you for sharing. I don't care for this idea, but, you know, thank you, but no, thank you. That's not what happened. We couldn't have gotten a better response from one of our heroes and we're just like beside ourselves. Like, oh my God, we're going to put the spilt milk album on hold. We're going to go on a, a writing <laughs> campaign with Brian Wilson for the next two months. <laughs> what year was this? Uh, Mid-92. Mm. Oh, yeah. my God, yeah. yeah. Could you ever finish that song and just get a hold of his people and say, we're using his chorus? <laughs> uh, I, I, don't let, I didn't let Sleeping Dogs Die because I poured my heart and soul into that idea, and it's a song called I Wish It Would Rain on my first solo album. Oh, oh it is. Okay. okay. Okay, cool. And what I did was um, I kept my verse and chorus, I wrote lyrics. I wrote a new bridge. I wrote a whole new outro. I rearranged the song top to bottom. But the verse chorus that you hear 
is the verse chorus uh-huh. that we shared with him. Well, thank you so much. I know you got a roll, and we really appreciate your time and the stories and wish you nothing but the best of luck. Uh, call me again. This, who doesn't who doesn't want to spend an afternoon this way? This is this is great fun. Fabulous meeting you, Roger. Great talking Meet to you, you guys. Roger. We'll see you. Okay, take care. Thanks for everything. Bye-bye. You got it. Bye-bye. Bye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.